Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 102. The thing about the Packer game is, Damian Lillard is a puck. Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard is a Milwaukee Buck. Hall of Fame guard Damian Lillard plays for the Milwaukee Bucks. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's high! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, face hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's intercepted, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. And a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, that was rough that was an ugly one that was basically one of the worst halves of football i think i've ever seen and i've been privileged i get it i've been privileged in my almost 40 years of existence to be alive during a time of great packer football the golden era of packer football with Favre and rogers and every year you're fighting for a division title and a playoff spot and home playoff games and first round buys and all that stuff super bowls all that kind of stuff That was one of the least organized, least inspiring halves of football that I think I've ever seen at Lambeau Field. Or should I say Ford Field? That was a huge topic on Twitter. Ford Field, what would it be? Where's Detroit in relation to Lambeau? Is it south? Was Lambeau southwest of Detroit? I'll have to consult the Atlas. (laughs) Someone's screaming at the podcast right now. Tell me where it is. I can't hear you. Sadly, I cannot hear you. This is only one-way communication. I think it's southwest, technically. And yeah, those Lions fans, the Honolulu Blue. I never thought I would see the day when Honolulu Blue took over Lambeau Field during a Packer-Lions game, and the Lions put it on the Packers, and then there were chants of Let's Go Lions reverberating off of the Lambeau Field facade as Packer fans left and Lions fans made their way down. There had to be 30,000 of them there. That was a massive topic of conversation on Twitter last night about it being a gold package game. It was a Milwaukee season ticket holder game. The gold package season ticket holders, maybe more so than the Packer or the Green Bay season ticket holders, are more notorious for quieter crowds and more notorious for selling their tickets. And they were firmly under the microscope on social media, which, by the way, they were under the microscope of people that were watching it from home, (laughs) which I think is one of the great funny hypocrisies of that take of someone on Twitter (laughs) typing that out, watching the game on their 72-inch TV in the comfort of their living room on their sofa and saying, these gold package fans should have their season tickets stripped from them. If they're not going to go to the games and they're going to sell the tickets to Lions fans, which is another funny element of that argument. How do you know you're selling it to Lions fans? Are we vetting the people that are buying these tickets? Are we going through some kind of process, some Packer trivia? They have to answer three Packer trivia questions. Like, you know when you buy tickets and they say, pick out all of the stop signals, pick out all of the Packer greats, 
And if you don't click on the right people, you don't get to buy the tickets. You have no idea who you're selling the tickets to. I guess you could assume if you're putting them on Twitter or on Twitter, on StubHub or some secondary market. I guess you probably assume that some of those fans snatching those tickets up are probably from the visiting team wanting to take the road trip and all that kind of stuff to a historic site. You have no idea that Lions fans are buying those tickets up. I thought that was very funny, though, people tweeting that, that were sitting at home. I can't believe these people aren't going to the game. It was a lot of blue, though. It was a lot of Honolulu blue. And all those let's go Lions chants. Normally, it's the opposite. Typically, for most of my life, you watch the Packers play a road game, and then you hear go pack go chants at the end of it when their fans have left and the 20 or 25 or 30,000. It looked like 30,000, 35,000. Is that going crazy? Lions fans there last night? It's normally the reverse where you hear those go pack go chants during road games. A single tear. If you look closely at the Vince Lombardi statue outside of Lambeau Field, the one that Curly Lambeau is pointing to, there was a single tear that was shed as he heard those let's go Lions chants at the end of that game. Different era. It's a different era. That was a huge topic of conversation. Should the gold package ticket holders be bought out? I mean, none of this is going to happen. It's frustrating when you lose and you hear the opponent's fans making a ton of noise at your team's home stadium. What are you going to do? Win the game. If you win the game, we wouldn't have heard it. We wouldn't have heard those chants. I think that was just one of those things where it was such a a frustrating game, a bang-your-head-against-the-wall game, maddening on so many levels, that then having that at the end, that became the source of anger, even though that's not the real problem. There's a lot of Lions fans there last night. Yeah, that was a different situation. And yet to give them credit for buying those tickets. I mean, I feel there's a little part of me. I hate to admit this. I've said this before that I am kind of a fan of Dan Campbell just because he's a lovable meathead. But he's also a good coach. I liked him more when he was just a meathead. I really enjoyed him more when we thought he was just a big muscle-bound buffoon that had a lot of great quotes and got you hyped up and was doing up-downs with his team. I liked him more then. It turns out he might actually have a really good football mind and is a very good schemer, at least offensively, who squeezes a ton of talent out of his team. I liked him more when he was just a buffoon. Here was his speech to his team at the end of the game. It just gets you jacked up. Everything about it, man. That's one. That's two in a row, and it's a conference win. Whoops, sorry. Hey, gentlemen. Great. We're three and one at the quarter. Man, the sky's the limit. We keep playing defense the way we're playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we control the game. We control the game on offense. We can do whatever we want to do, man, but we can never lose this. We can never lose this. It is a team ball. Who said that? Oh. Team ball, there ain't oh, no doubt. Go. That's an outstanding win, man. I'm so proud of you guys. That's one, man. That is one division win. You guys get your rest, enjoy this break. You can earned it, and then we move on and we get ready for Carolina after this. I mean, it just gets you psyched up. I never thought I would see the day where we're hearing "Let's Go Lions" chants at Lambeau. And the Lions are beating the Packers every year. And I want the Lions coach to be our coach. You've got that kind of situation happening in the Lions locker room. Meanwhile, Matt LaFleur is fighting back tears at halftime. What the hell was that at that halftime interview? Looked like he was getting choked up. I think he was trying to motivate his team, but it just comes off in such a different way. Yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a new world right now. I'm not sure how long we're going to be in it. Hopefully not three decades. It's a different world right now. Dan Campbell's beaten Matt LaFleur four straight times. Dan Campbell owns Matt LaFleur. 
That's where we're at right now. That's the situation at present. He has beaten LaFleur four times. He has outcoached him four times. His teams have outplayed LaFleur's Packers four times. He's got LaFleur in his little pocket. He's got little Matt LaFleur. He's got Dan Campbell has him in his little pocket right now. That's just the fact of the matter. Yeah, that halftime interview. I don't know what was going on there. And then LaFleur at the end of the game, during the postgame, I guess we'll get to more of that coming up maybe. He was it was the same stuff. He just seemed agitated, but LaFleur's agitation hits differently. It sounds more annoyed and he's getting kind of choked up and he said something was a BS question and it was uh an uncomfortable atmosphere, I guess I would say, in the post-game presser, but that's the that's the job. You're going to have to answer some tough questions or some dumb questions if your team loses the way that they did and they look the way they did in the first half. Is it possible? Here's a take for you. Is it possible, because we've seen Matt LaFleur have success, a lot of it with Aaron Rodgers, now we're getting our first taste of what life could be like with Matt LaFleur as the head coach and not having a Hall of Fame quarterback. We don't know what Jordan Love is yet. Maybe he will be, maybe he won't be. The likelihood he's not going to be. He's had three good games, I think, and one kind of bad game, which I would not put totally on him last night. But this is a different stage now for Matt LaFleur, and we're going to learn more about him as we go forward this year and probably next year too. He's had success. He struggled in the playoffs. And now we'll find out what he's like with a different quarterback. Is it possible that Matt LaFleur is better-looking Mike Sherman? I'm going to let you ruminate on that. (laughs) Is it possible Matt LaFleur is just a handsomer version of Mike Sherman? It's possible. It's definitely possible. Well, things started out great. They had Watson back, Aaron Jones back. It was a one-point spread. First place on the line. You're getting your two most dynamic playmakers back. And then... They go out there on that first drive. The defense is excellent. They get in the backfield. It's a third and long right out of the gate. They're putting pressure on Goff. He throws a pick. Rudy Ford with an interception. You're set up inside the Lions' 20-yard line, a chance to strike right at the onset of it and shut those Lions fans that made the pilgrimage to Lambeau Field up. That offensive drive was not great, uneven at best. They end up settling for a field goal, but still. You get the quick interception, you put points on the board, set the tone a little bit. After that, though, it was a total nosedive. It was like the Saints win probability. It was like my Roth IRA in when did the pandemic hit officially March of 2020? That's what it looked like. That win probability that the Saints had, and then the fourth quarter, it just flatlined. That's what things looked like after that initial drive and field goal. The pick and the field goal, and then nothing good after that. Goff marched them right down the field, shredding Joe Barry's defense. The offense couldn't stop anybody. I mean, ultimately, to me, let's not overcomplicate things. This game was lost in the trenches. They just got their and they got their butts kicked. Where's my John Goodman? I think I actually have the John Goodman Revenge of the Nerds. You just got. Well, look at you now. <laughs> you just got your asses whipped. Well, they weren't nerds. You just got your asses whipped. I mean, the front seven on each side, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't run the ball on offense, nor did they try to. That's a whole other thing with Matt LaFleur, too. I am so goddamn sick of Matt LaFleur in those postgame pressers as it relates to the same problems that have existed for three years, but specifically Aaron Jones who, as we just said, came back from injury. We saw the impact he can have on a game. We always see it when he gets the ball. You saw it in week one when he took over that Bears game, and then he had the hamstring injury. We haven't seen him since. How many times have we had Matt LaFleur at that post-game press conference media table get questioned about not getting Aaron Jones the ball? And how many times does he say, you know what, that's on me. We got to figure out a way to do it. We got to be better with that. Well, just do it. Just do it. Do it. Please. 
Give him the ball. Give him the ball three straight times to start a game. Maybe you take the headset off and put it on someone else, some other trainer or assistant coach or intern that's just going to call three straight plays for Aaron Jones so you don't get in there and muddle it up. I don't understand how hard it is to get your best playmaker the ball, and we go through this all the time. Aaron Jones didn't touch the ball until the second quarter, and you just got him back, and you've got a a decimated offensive line. You're trying to run trick plays and plays that take forever to develop. Meanwhile, Aiden Hutchinson is steamrolling your entire offensive line, going through him like a bunch of Goombas in Mario, and Jordan Love has half a second to make a decision because he's going to get sacked. Establish the run. Try. Didn't get his first touch until the second quarter. Five carries, 18 yards. That's it. That's all they did. And they didn't really even get him those five carries until the third quarter when they actually moved the ball. I don't understand that. But it was a front seven game. They could not block anybody up front. Again, you had Noelton Jenkins. David Bakhtiari, maybe that's a whole other topic for another podcast. Is He's done. He may be just done with the NFL. He was put on the IR before the game, so the knee situation is way worse than we thought where it would be like last year where he would play some games, take off some games, he would be every other maybe, or he'd play 11 games or 12 games. Turns out to be way worse than that. He's having another surgery. I feel for him. I know people are frustrated with David Bakhtiari. They're saying some awful things about David Bakhtiari. I can understand fans being upset that one of the highest paid players on the team cannot get on the field, and you've got some fans that think he's not trying to get on the field, whatever your take is. I believe he has gone through the rehab and tried to get back on the field. He stands to gain nothing by doing this out of spite or not working hard or just being fine with collecting a paycheck. I, I, I don't know. But his career may be over. I don't know how he's going to come back from this. Another knee surgery. And they said they're going to focus on 2024. When they reported that initially, the report said he's going on the IR, but he could be coming off of it. The IR has those different levels now where they can be designated for return. And the subsequent tweet was, he's on the IR, but he could come back after four weeks. I thought, well, you've already had him out for two weeks. It makes sense. You've got the Monday night game. You've got kind of a mini-bye this week. Then you've got the Monday nighter. Then you've got the bye week. Maybe he could come back by week eight or nine. Then an hour later, Rappaport was on ESPN or NFL Network saying he's going in for another surgery, and the focus now is trying to get set for 2024. The offensive line decimated, but you have to play better. Rasheed Walker had played better especially in pass protection. He was a nightmare last night. Royce Newman, what are we doing? What are we doing with that guy on the field? He's been awful for over a year now. He was okay his rookie year. He has been a hot mess since then, a grease fire out there. He's blocking no one. There's a whole montage, 45 seconds of Royce Newman blocking ghosts yesterday. Who are you blocking? Meanwhile, Jones, Jordan Love has three guys in his kitchen eating the leftovers out of his fridge and Royce Newman's at three-point stance level blocking ghosts. I don't understand how Sean Ryan can be that bad that you cannot give him a look. He looked pretty good in the preseason, okay in training camp. He can't be any worse. But that offensive line could not stop anybody. Jordan Love had zero time. Jordan Love didn't have a good game either. He had an okay third quarter. He was got down the field, made some passes in that third quarter. The touchdown to Watson, if he would have missed that, it would have been anarchy on Twitter, on Packer Twitter, because there was no one around Christian Watson. He had a nice throw on the two-point conversion. There were some things to, like, the scramble for the touchdown. That was a good read. That was a design play for Love. They looked better in the second half. He just didn't have any time. He didn't even have half a second on most of those plays, and that was the biggest part of the game. And then the other side was the front seven defensively. Outside of that first drive where they forced Jared Goff and the line offense into a third and long, maybe they had a couple drives in the third quarter as they tightened things up a little bit. 
But when the Lions wanted it, they just got whatever they wanted on the ground. Again, over 160 yards on the ground. David Montgomery chewing up yards at will, particularly on that last drive that ends with the field goal, and then you had the Quay Walker penalty, then it ends up being a first and goal, and they ultimately get the touchdown. On that drive where you were down 10, you were actually in a better position last night than they were at the beginning of the fourth quarter against the Saints when they were down 17. They got it down to 27-17. The defense had gotten two stops in a row. Offense had scored twice in a row. You're looking for one more stop. Then you get the ball back with some momentum. Maybe you can make this a one-score game. That was the drive where they just handed the ball off every play, it seemed like. And every play, they were chunking five, six, seven, eight yards. When the rubber met the road, the defense could not stop that run. It's a tale as old as time. It's been going on for two years. Matt LaFleur was asked about that in the postgame, too, as it relates to Joe Barry. How do we get to a point where you can kind of stop the run? And exasperated, he said the same thing he says about himself with Aaron Jones. We can't keep doing the same thing. We've got to do something different. We can't keep doing the same thing. Well, then do it. (laughs) Do something. I understand the logistics. I understand the fan base knee-jerk, given how bad the Barry defense has been now for a year and a half. And I thought it was pretty good in 2021. We've talked about this. They were fringe top 10 or right at number 10, depending on the metric in 2021. Excellent in the playoff game that year against the Niners. They weren't the reason they lost. Big step back last year. Continued steps back so far this year. I understand from a coaching perspective, it is difficult to fire somebody midseason, install a new coordinator who maybe doesn't have the same system. You almost have to install somebody then that would have a similar system. And if you're going to do that, then what's the difference? You know what I mean? It's tough to fire somebody and install an entirely new defensive mentality Right out of the gate. Maybe you can find someone who's more adaptable. Maybe someone who has some of the same ideas that Joe Barry has, but is willing to adjust on the fly and get out of those zone coverages and try to bring some blitzing and put some pressure on somebody. Maybe someone who will mix things up a little bit more. Joe Barry's got one pitch. That's all he's, he's a pitcher with one pitch. And it works 25-30% of the time, and he just sticks with that pitch. You've got to have somebody who's got three or four different pitches they can go to when things don't work. He doesn't seem to have that in his arsenal. But the same stuff, I mean, it's the exact same response that he had to the Aaron Jones question. we got to do something different. Well, how many times are we going to keep doing this over and over and over again? It's like living in Groundhog Day. It's the exact same. Sonny and Cher on the radio to, st- to start the day. It's the same stuff. But the front seven for the Packer defense couldn't stop the run, and the Packer offensive line couldn't stop the Lions' front seven, and that's the game. I don't know that there was a ton to really like coming out of last night. They did come out better in the third quarter, had that long drive, got it down to a 10-point game, and then the Lions marched down there, field goal, Quay. Some people were getting upset about Quay Walker. I saw some people tweeting that Quay Walker cost them the game. I mean, guys. What are we doing? What are we What are we doing? That would be like me saying the double cheeseburger I had last night is the reason my arteries are clogged. No, it's eating crap for 20 years in a row. It's not the one cheeseburger I had last night. It's the culmination of a lot of different stuff. Even if they that penalty doesn't happen, it's a 30-17 to 17 game with seven minutes left. You need a touchdown, a stop, and another touchdown. Did anybody think that was going to happen? That was asking a lot. I know they came back in week three, but just the way that game played out last night, even if there is no penalty there and all the Lions get is a field goal and you're down 13, it feels pretty unlikely they're going touchdown, stop, touchdown with eight minutes left in the game. The defense would have to be in a spot where they couldn't allow a first down or two maybe on that subsequent drive. In a fantasy world where the Packers do get a touchdown to make it 30-24, to then you've got, what, about four minutes left in the game with two timeouts and the defense would need to stop them pretty much immediately. I don't know that that was going to be something that was going to happen given the way they played run defense last night. 
And Quay Walker had 19 tackles. If, outside of that penalty, if you wanted to look for silver lining guys, Romeo Dobbs I thought was sort of a silver lining guy, nine catches, 90 yards. Miscommunication on that love pick with under four minutes left. At that point, though, you're pressing and you're down and there's just no chance you're going to win anyway. He had a pretty good game. I thought Rashawn Gary again had a pretty good game. Quay outside of the mistake, obviously, on the field goal attempt. 19 tackles. That's a boatload of tackles. That's a fairly good game. Now, how many of those tackles were Blake Martinez tackles where David Montgomery was four or five yards upfield already or six yards upfield and he's making a tackle? Still, 19 tackles is 19 tackles. Of all the issues they had last night, that Clay Walker, that Quay Walker penalty was pretty low on the list. What else did I text myself here as we were watching the game? Keyshawn Nixon, good punt return late. I am D-O-N-E done with Keyshawn Nixon returning kicks from eight yards back in the end zone. That was a fun subplot last year when we saw the team kind of get it together and they went on that run late and put themselves in a spot where if they would have beaten the Lions at Lambeau Field, they would have gotten in the playoffs as a 9-8 team. A large part of that was Keyshawn Nixon jolting that special teams with some energy and getting big kick returns. And he had the kick return touchdown against the Vikings late in the year when they routed Minnesota. I'm done with that. I am out on returning any kick that's three yards deep in the end zone. Just let it go. Just get a touchback. I don't think he's gotten one past the 20 this year. I I don't know if it's the blocking or what it is, or maybe he's changed or they've had film on him and they have a better approach to stopping him, the opposing team, special teams. Stop it. Stop, especially with seven or eight yards deep. I guess if you're at the goal line or a yard in, maybe you take the chance. How many times this year has he taken a ball out of the end zone six yards deep and get stopped at the 17-yard line? Done. Done with it. Stop. Special teams overall, bad. Uh, you had Anders Carlson was good. couple of field goals, 50-yarder at the end when they just tried to make it a two-score game, 34-20. to 20. He may be good for all of the gnashing of teeth that we had in the offseason. Carlson still hasn't missed a kick. Their punter looks okay, but the coverage units, again, pretty poor. Penalties left and right. You've got Nixon, like we just said, taking the ball out from five or six yards deep, not even getting into the 20-yard line. Rich Basaccia is the highest-paid special teams coach in the league. He was brought in specifically to make that unit better. We said it on last week's podcast. They've been marginally better, but the bar was so low from, what was it, Ron Zook, and I forget all the guys that they had fired before that previously. Who was the guy that was just the nightmare in 2021? I think I blocked his name out of my brain. He was so bad. The bar was so low. I think they've raised it half a notch. These last two weeks, though, it's some of the same old stuff. Bad decision-making. Jaden Reed made that decision on the punt return last night where he let the ball bounce. Then he tried to pick it up. Then he lost it. They were lucky to fall on it. Just dumb mistakes. It's all the same dumb mistakes they've been making previously, except this time you're paying your special teams coach triple what you were paying them before. That unit has fallen off, and any positivity we had about Rich Passacci is starting to wane a bit, I would say. LaFleur outcoached. Love missed some throws. Look, you're going to have people that are going to come after Jordan Love after losses. That's just the way it's going to be. You've got a fan base that is accustomed to Hall of Fame quarterback play and fighting for division championships and having Super Bowl expectations every year. And when Jordan Love has a game where he's one touchdown, two picks, he got on the ground for a touchdown. I thought he looked all right in spots. To me, the offensive line was the biggest issue. You have to give him time. Aaron Rodgers, I don't think this game plays out any differently if Aaron Rodgers is the quarterback. We basically saw this game a little different in Week 18 last year where the offense couldn't get anything going. I don't know that this game looks a whole lot different if you have a Hall of Fame quarterback or you have Jordan Love when they get the protection that they got. He made a couple of throws. He does have a problem with accuracy deep. He continues to sail the ball a couple of times. 
So the Jordan Love people that hate Jordan Love and think that he's not a franchise quarterback and think the Packers made a mistake and that they need to draft another quarterback or put Sean Clifford in, that whole segment of the fan base was out in force yesterday. I am convinced, I am convinced that that group of fans that are so loud about every Jordan Love mistake and how this is not the guy and put Clifford in or draft a quarterback this year, he's not a franchise player, blah, blah, blah. I am convinced that that group of fans, if you gave them a red pill and a blue pill, and we'll do the Matrix, and the red pill, if you take that, the Packers win a Super Bowl in the Jordan Love era. We'll just say one. We'll just say one Super Bowl. They win a Super Bowl in the Jordan Love era in the next 10 years or 12 years or whatever it is. That's the red pill. The blue pill is Jordan Love is not the guy, and it becomes obvious after a year or two that they have to move on and get a different quarterback or try Clifford or whatever they do at that point. That's the blue pill. Jordan Love is not the guy, and then they get to be right. They get to throw a parade for themselves because they were right about Jordan Love not being the guy. Which one do you think they'd take? I think they'd take the blue pill. Honest to God, I think they'd take the blue pill. There is always that group of fans in any fan base, and this is not just a Packer thing. Every fan base, baseball, hockey, football, basketball, whatever, you have that group of fans that point out all the flaws and tell you, oh, this team's not going to win a title. This team's not going to do this. This player can't be this. And then when it comes to B, they love to pat themselves on the back. I told you. I also think of the 2014 Brewer season where that team did not have a lot of talent, but they were good for 90% of the year and then absolutely immolated in the final month of the season. And then that group of fans who all season long, instead of enjoying a four- or five-month ride, they got to say, I told you. I told you they weren't going to be good. I've been telling you all year long. I do not understand that fan base that just would prefer to be right about their team being bad than they would like to see their team have success. I'm convinced they take the blue pill in that situation. Jordan Love liked the Quay Walker penalty in my mind pretty far down the list of issues they had last night. The issue 1A, 1B, defensive line and offensive line. What else? Carlson, Whelan, we hit on all that kind of stuff. All right, so they're 2-2. Two and two. I saw, I think it was a tweet by Andy Herman. And in the fury of last night and the way they played and the way the first half looked and all the Lions fans at Lambeau Field and let's go Lions chance, he said, let's all take a breath. I'm paraphrasing. Let's all take a breath. This is a very young team with a quarterback who is in the beginning of his era as the starting quarterback for a franchise. He made his sixth start last night. That's it, six. And his fourth start in his era. And the team is 2-2. Two and two. They've looked pretty good for three games. They haven't played a complete game, really. Even the Bears game, they stumbled a bit at the beginning. They haven't played a full game yet. They're making young team mistakes, and they're 2-2. Two and two. And that's pretty much where we expected them to be to begin the year. When you looked at the schedule, maybe optimistically some people thought 3-1, and one, but the majority when you looked at that, you thought, okay, 2-2. Two and two. That's where they are. They're 2-2. Two and two. They have a long stretch now until Monday night against Vegas. Hopefully they play better. Hopefully they come out quicker. That seems to be an issue the last couple weeks. They came out quick against the Falcons, then fell apart. They've been slow, sluggish, in a coma in the first half of each of the last two weeks. And this one, they couldn't come back from the way they did from the Saints. Got to find a way to get the team going and get them locked in, which shouldn't be hard with a young team. I mean, it's another coaching thing. Starting to sour on the floor. The longer we talk about this, I'm souring a bit. I got to de-sour. I got to de-sour and sweeten. But they got to find a way to get out quicker. It should be a better matchup. Lions are a good team. I mean, the Lions were the betting favorites to win the division. We see the reasons for that now. They are the team everybody's going to be chasing. Jordan Love conceded that, too, in his postgame when they talked about that. He said, look, we both came in 2-1. and one. They won the game handily. Clearly, they are the team to beat right now, the team we are chasing in the NFC North. 
Raiders should be a better matchup. You essentially get a mini-bye, and then after the Raider game, you get the full bye week to get as healthy as you can possibly get before heading into then what would it be, week six. Two and two. There's been a lot to like. There's been some to not like. This is the life with a young team. This is where we're at. All right, let's talk about the Brewers. Then we'll real quick hit on Dame Lillard one more time because why not? And on a positive note. And then we'll make some picks against the spread. Brewers got a win yesterday. As we talked about the emergency pod, they sealed the division with that Cubs loss. Since then, they got a couple wins. Offense still kind of uneven the last couple games, but they are also trotting out some different lineups. That lineup they had on, when did they clinch on Tuesday? The Wednesday lineup was a hangover lineup. That was hangover lineup 101. No Santana, no Canna, no Yelly. A lot of deeper bench players getting a start in that 3-2 win. Then yesterday, Corbin got his final tune-up before he'll start, I would guess, game one of the wildcard series next Tuesday. Looked sharp, four innings, no runs given up, had four strikeouts. Then how about Julio Tehran? He's kind of come back to where he was at the beginning of the year. Four shutout with four strikeouts in relief. He saves the bullpen, only gives up one hit. He gets the win. His final numbers, he's going to pitch over 70 innings for this team. Like Colin Ray, we discussed that a few podcasts ago. These were not guys you thought you were going to count on for anything. Julio Tehran wasn't even on anybody's radar to begin the year. He hadn't pitched in two years in Major League Baseball. These guys gave you, Ray gave you over 100 innings, and they went 14-9 and in games he started. And Julio Tehran, the record is 3-5. and He kept the team in a lot of games. They lost a lot of pitcher's duels when he was going early. And he comes into the game yesterday, saves some of the bullpen, is able to get the win, 3-5 and five record, over 70 innings pitched, a 4.5 ERA, or a little under that. That's pretty good, all things considered. Ethan Small came on and got a save yesterday, gave up a couple of walks, got the scoreless inning, though. He was the top-rated pitching prospect in the Brewers' system in 2021, and then he came up and got absolutely shelled at Wrigley Field, and I don't think he's recovered from that. And sometimes that happens where you're a top prospect, you get called up to the major league level, you give up 10 runs. He, I mean, he just got obliterated in the first game he came up and looked overmatched top to bottom. Then he went back down to the minor leagues that year, and he couldn't get it together there. It had to mess with him a little bit mentally. It has to. When you're dominating people in single A and rookie ball, single A, double A, and triple A, and then you come up to the major league level, and they're just BP, and the ball's looking like a balloon to the guys that you're throwing it to, that's got to mess with you mentally. And it took him a while to get back on track. He's had a good year at AAA. His ERA was 3.1 or 2 at AAA Nashville as a relief pitcher now. That was another issue for him. He's a two-pitch pitcher, and they tried to make him a starter. That almost never works. There are so few pitchers that can have success as a starter with only two pitchers, with a fastball and one off-speed pitch, and that's it. you got to have three or four, like we just talked about with Joe Barry. You've got to have a better assortment of pitches Because then you can't, if you only have two pitches, even if they're elite pitches, you can only go through the lineup maybe one time. Once you get to that second and especially the third time through the lineup, that's not going to be successful, even if those two pitches are top-level pitches. That was one of his issues. And then he went back and became a relief pitcher and has been better in the minor leagues, and he came up and got himself a save. Good for him. First career save yesterday. As the Brewers get a 3-0 win, they take the series from the Cardinals, 90th win of the year. The question is now... Who are they going to play starting next Tuesday? Things got a little wonky with the schedule yesterday. The Cubs are falling apart. They have absolutely shriveled. They are a dandelion in the summer breeze right now, losing every game. They get swept in Atlanta. The Miami Marlins played in New York yesterday. They split the doubleheader on Wednesday with New York. Then they were playing last night. They were down 1-0 late. In the ninth inning, they tied it, then took a lead. 
And with two outs in the top of the ninth inning, with two on and a two-to-one lead, the rain started coming down in New York. They bring the tarp out. They go into rain delay. Three hours go by, and they suspend play. This is a crucial game in terms of wild card standing. It's a critical game for the Marlins, for the Cubs, and kind of the Diamondbacks now, too. The Diamondbacks had a home loss or a road loss to the White Sox on Thursday. All of a sudden, that number five seed is in play where the Marlins could get the five seed, and that may open a door for the Cubs to still get in if they can get past the Diamondbacks. The problem the Cubs have is they don't have tiebreakers with anybody. In any tiebreaker situation, they are out. They are not going to be in. Cubs, of course, are at AmFam Field. Brewers are not going to pitch anybody of relevance. They're starting Colin Ray on Friday tonight. They have TBD for Saturday, and they're going with Adrian Hauser on Sunday. That will set up. Burns on Tuesday and Woodruff on Wednesday for whoever the opponent ends up being. Now, the Marlins go to Pittsburgh. I guess they could clinch without having to go back and redo that game or pick up that game. It feels pretty likely, though, they're going to play three games in Pittsburgh Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And depending on how things shake out, they may have to travel back to New York on Monday and start a game in the ninth inning with two outs in the top of the ninth. It could last six minutes in this new pitch clock baseball era. They could fly all the way back to New York from Pittsburgh for an eight-minute game, but it's a pivotal game in terms of wildcard standing. We'll see if they have to do that. It feels, I would think, 75-80% like they're going to have to do that. So right now, let me click on the standings here and make sure I get this right. The Phillies are the four seed. They're the top wild card team. The Brewers are the three seed as the worst of the three division winners. Right now, if the season ended today, the Brewers would play the Marlins on Tuesday. They right now are the six seed. They have a game and a half lead on the Cubs, right? No, no, a half game lead on the Cubs. If they hang on to win that Mets game, though, they're up a full game. They have a half game lead on the Cubs, and they are one and a half games behind the Diamondbacks. Again, if they get that win, which they only need three outs to get, They'd only be a game behind the Diamondbacks for the five seed, which would then send them to Philly, and that could send Arizona to Milwaukee. I don't want that. We've talked about that for two podcasts now. I would rather the Cubs. My preference is the Marlins, then the Cubs. It looks like the Reds are pretty much out of it. The Marlins, then the Cubs. Those are my preferences. The Diamondbacks, even though they're in a bit of a skid right now, those two pitchers, Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly, when you line them up against any of the top two pitchers in baseball are go- as good as just about anybody. Zach Gallon is routinely a top five, top ten Cy Young guy. Merrill Kelly is a guy who's been in the Cy Young conversation. He was the best pitcher on Team USA in the World Baseball Classic. I think he pitched that final game when they were taking on Japan. That's a phenomenal one, too. And in a short series where it's only a regular best of three series, I don't love that, especially given the problems the Brewer offense has had this year. I would love to avoid Arizona. Right now, it would be a Brewers-Marlins matchup. A lot can and probably will happen this weekend, though, and that may spill over into Monday if the Marlins have to go back and finish off that Mets game. If the Brewers do play the Marlins, I had a texter this morning ask if any of the times have come out for the games, if they have tickets, if you have tickets on Tuesday or Wednesday for game one and two. There are no times as of yet. I'm going to tell you right now, if it's Brewers-Marlins, they may play at 9 (laughs) a.m. They may play. I don't know what time they're going to play. They're playing afternoon, though. When we get to those wild card rounds and the DS rounds, you know, they do them all day. They do. They have one game in the noon window, one game in the three window, one in the six window, and then one in the eight window. They try to stretch it out all day and get the all-day TV ratings. 
if it ends up being Brewers Marlins, that has so little sizzle nationally. It does for us. I don't know if it does for Marlins fans. I don't know. I don't know what their TV ratings look like. Attendance continues to be fairly dismal for Marlins games. Maybe they have gigantic TV ratings. I have no idea. The sizzle, though, nationally for a Brewers-Marlins wildcard series is going to be very low, which means to me they likely would play a noon or a 1 o'clock start time, at least one of those games, maybe both, but at least one of those games on Tuesday or Wednesday if that's the matchup. Now, if it's the Brewers and Cubs, that's got more rivalry to it. You've got a major media market in Chicago. Then you could end up playing a couple of night games. I'm not sure how Major League Baseball would perceive a potential Diamondbacks-Brewers matchup. If it is Brewers-Marlins, though, I would expect some early afternoon start times on either Tuesday or Wednesday or both on Tuesday and Wednesday. We're getting set for it, though, man. I can't wait. The Playoff baseball is a drug. It is. We finally got a taste of it, or I did in 2008. In 2011, they made the run of the NLCS. In 2018, a game within the World Series. And then they felt like they've been in every year. Last year, they don't make it, and I'm, I'm missing my hit. <laughs> I'm missing it. I need it. I need it. I'm excited for it next week. Then let's end on, well, Badger football, by the way, obviously a bye week, nothing there. Let's end on Dame, then we'll make some picks. Damian Lillard's a buck. I put that at halftime on my Facebook status during the Packer game just to maybe bring people a smile, <laughs> try to, the way we started this podcast. The thing about the Packers looking awful is nothing can bring us down this week. Nothing. The Bucks acquired a future Hall of Famer as their point guard. Now, one thing you did see in the aftermath of the trade, on a national perspective, and I saw some of it locally too, were people trying to say, well, let's take it easy here. Uh, they've been calling the Bucks a super team. Well, the super team, remember the Lakers tried that in 2004? That didn't work. Well, the Nets tried it with Harden and Kyrie, and that didn't work. Nothing's a guarantee. And they fell off defensively. And how good are they even with Lillard over Holiday? Are they even any better with Lillard over Holiday? You started to see all those takes. Bill Simmons was one that I had to laugh at. He's a diehard Celtics fan. I think many of you know who he is. He, on his podcast, I listen to it pretty frequently, he was full-on copium on his podcast because it's the biggest move of the offseason. It far trumps the Celtics getting Kristaps Porzingis and his legs that are made of pixie sticks. It way gets past that. It's the biggest move. They're the favorites to win the title. You could feel it in the tone of his voice that he was down in the dumps about it, and he was trying to find all the holes. Well, you know, Drew Holiday, if he ends up in Philly or if he ends up in Miami, that may be a bigger move, and the Bucks have major defensive liabilities now, and how are they going to guard this guy or that guy? I mean, guys, they got Damian Lillard. <laughs> yes, they're going to drop off a bit defensively. Of course they are. Lillard's offense, though, is so far above Holiday's offense. And this is no disrespect to Drew Holiday. I wrote a whole blog about Drew Holiday on Thursday because everybody was writing about Lillard and how awesome that was and all the different takes on that, especially from Bucks fans and Bucks podcasters and bloggers. I tried to take a little different approach. We're going to miss Drew Holiday. We're going to miss him as a person, a locker room guy. They don't win the title without him in 2021. As we said, he's part of the most iconic play in Bucks history, the Valley Oop in Game 5. To read that play the way he did, to have the balls that he had to throw that alley-oop when so much could have gone wrong there, it is etched in history. There, The Bucks could play another 100 years and win 10 more championships, and I don't know if a single play is going to be bigger than that. He'll get his number 21 retired at some point. The fans that night will give him a huge ovation. He will have deserved every bit of it. Lillard's offense is so much greater than Holiday's offense that it supersedes how little the defensive drop-off is. And I don't think Lillard, by a lot of metrics, he's not great defensively. How Lillard works with Adrian Griffin, how he plays now on a franchise that is legitimately chasing a title, that could have an impact too. 
the offensive leap is so much bigger than the defensive drop-off that it's a trade you still make 100 times out of 100. If you're someone who doesn't want to have pure joy in your life, I saw a lot of Bucks fans like this that were talking about that. They were talking about, oh, this could go wrong or that could go wrong. If you are somebody that just can't have a straight shot of dopamine for 24 hours and it's too much for you to handle and you've got to find the negative and you, <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to find the pee in your Cheerios, by all means, do whatever you have to do for your own mental state. I am going to choose at this point in September to be nothing but pure joy and excitement for this move. They're doing a pep rally for Dame. I think it's at 2 o'clock on Saturday at Fiserv Forum. And all the introductory press conferences, training camp starts next week. Monday will be probably the intro press conference where Horst will take questions. I'm assuming Dame's going to take questions. All of that kind of stuff. Yes, are there going to be some issues and growing pains and are injuries always a factor and do super teams always work out and all that kind of stuff? We can have all those conversations at some point on September 29th, 48 hours after the Bucks acquire a once-in-a-lifetime point guard to put next to their once-in-a-lifetime power forward. You've got two guys now that were on the NBA top 75 team, all 75 team. I'm not going to be negative about any of it. I'm not going to worry about any of it. We can worry about it later if those worries come to be. Right now, the Bucks have two of the best players in the NBA, and they are the odds-on favorite to win the championship. And they've reopened their window. I think we can all agree, most Bucks fans can, this team, if they just kept it as it was, had one year. They had one year. The window was closing. The window probably started in 2019. They tripped over themselves in the Eastern Conference Finals against Toronto. We all know what happened the pandemic year. They win the title in 2021. 2022, losing seven in Boston in round two. Injuries a factor with Middleton. 2023, historic upset at the hands of the Heat. Injuries a factor still with Middleton. And then with Giannis's back 10 minutes into or five minutes into game one. That's a five-year run, though, where they had a chance to probably win a title every year. They won one, which we will never take for granted. That window, though, with that version of the team, the window was open just ever so slightly. I think if you go back to the podcast where they hired Adrian Griffin, generously I was giving them a two-year window with the current team. In all reality, it was a one-year window. Well, now, with Giannis for two more years in a player option and Dame under contract for three years in a player option and Middleton under contract for two years in a player option and Brooke for two years in a player option, they've opened a whole new window. They've opened a door. They've opened a three-car garage door. The window was shutting, and you started to wonder if it was already on the downslide and thinking, well, we, we only got one, which we love, but you'd love more. You'd always love more. And then with this move, boom, the window is wide open again for a championship run or two or three or two tree for the Bucks, They do have that party. I'm looking at the Facebook right now. They've got a party, 2 o'clock Pfizer, form on Saturday, and then all the introductory stuff will be happening on Monday. Maybe they'll do some press conference stuff on Saturday with that introductory party form. I have no idea. Dame Lillard is a buck. Let's make some picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to 1 on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. All right, we will. We didn't put any money, by the way, on the Packers, thank God, last night. Let me get over to the. Oh, I forgot to play this. I was going to play this in the intro, too. You ever hear the Chris Farley Packer Damadol? You got me this Packers Damadol. There you a, go. A Damadol? What? I, I, I don't understand. I guess the idea is if the Packers are in trouble or something like that, you, you bang it on the table and go, damn it, The Damadol would have been getting a workout yesterday. I love that Chris Farley clip. The Packer Damadol. 
Anyway, picks against the spread. We were two over. We're four and two last week. We are nine and seven on the year. All right, that's good. Step four after a couple of 500 weeks. I've got two college, three NFL. We'll burn through these. I've got Penn State minus 26 and a half at Northwestern. Penn State is a legit top 10 team. They are a fringe maybe team that could be a dark horse for a college football playoff. Northwestern is a program in shambles. I I think Penn State's going to win that game by seven touchdowns. The only thing in games like that that I get concerned about is Penn State gets up 35-0 by halftime. They're lollygagging in the second half, and then Northwestern will score like a touchdown in the fourth quarter and backdoor it. I'll take Penn State 26 and a half on the road. I'm fading Dion again. We didn't make that a part of the official picks. I don't think. I have to go back and listen. I don't think we did. Dion on the road at Oregon last week. They were 22-point dogs. I texted my buddies before the game. It's on the record if you want to see it. I said I'm fading Dion. All the enthusiasm behind the Colorado program, like rightfully so. Go on the road and beat T- TCU in the opening week. Number 14, TCU. TCU was just in the national title game last year. They go on the road and win that game. Then they take care of Nebraska bad. They win in double overtime against Colorado State. Colorado State's not a good team. They give up a ton of points in all three of those games. Oregon is a legit team with a legit defense and a legit offense, and I thought they were going to smoke them, and they did. And I'm going to fade them again. USC, top 10 team. Caleb Williams going to be the number one overall pick in the draft. I just don't see Colorado having the defenders to stop that offense. USC, minus 21 and a half at Colorado. By the way, Colorado's going to lose a bunch of games. And even though they were the talking point in the opening weeks, the opening three weeks, and all the sound bites from Deion Sanders and the postgame pressers and the clips and do you believe now and all that stuff, that's so fun. And that's going to be a fun team for however long he's there. That's a team that at best is a 6-16. Six and 16. And I have the over, by the way, on three and a half wins. That was it. The season win total for Colorado was three and a half for the year. And they are three and one. They started three and oh. They're going to get past that easily. This is probably a six and six on the high side, seven and five team. They just don't have the horses yet, and they're too young to deal with the teams that they're dealing with now Oregon and USC. USC minus 21 and a half at Colorado. Then I've got three in the NFL. I'm taking the Dolphins plus two and a half at Buffalo. Sorry, Steve. Buffalo has been a lot better the last few weeks. That Dolphins team, I mean, uh, recency bias, sure. They put 70 on the board. Their offense has looked good every week. I don't know who's going to stop them, and they're healthy. I'll take Dolphins getting points on the road, plus two and a half at Buffalo. The Cleveland defense, I believe, is legit. Baltimore is banged up. Disappointing loss for them at home against the Colts. I'm taking Cleveland at home, minus two and a half against the Ravens. And I kind of want a particular on the Browns now to win the division. Remember, we've got the Browns over on nine and a half season wins. We talked about that before the year began. That's one of our futures bets. Right now, the Browns are plus 180 to win that division. I may throw something at that before the weekend hits. Because if they win this game, like I think they will, then that's going to be almost even money or slightly less than even money. I just I like that defense. It seems like Deshaun Watson is kind of getting it together now after the suspension and coming back midway through last year. And if he ends up being what he was in Houston, they did sign Kareem Hunt. It's just an all-person team on that squad. <laughs> On that squad, isn't it? Yeesh. Maybe they trade for Jonathan Taylor. That seems like a place that would be a no-brainer to make a Jonathan Taylor trade after Nick Chubb went down. You could just easily slot Taylor in there. He's almost the exact same type of running back. I don't know why they don't explore that. Maybe they are. But if you get Watson to look like Houston Watson and that defense is what it looks like, that team may win 11 or 12 games and win that division. And then I'm going to take the Chiefs at the Jets, minus 8.5. The Jets are awful without Rodgers. I don't know what they would have been with them. Better, but... They are terrible with Zach Wilson. Chiefs defense is underrated, and they'll put points up, I think, enough against a fairly good Jets defense. Minus 8.5 to win that game, 27-17 or 27-10, something like that. Taylor Swift is going to be in attendance 
for week two. The Swifties will be watching the NFL again. And that, to me, that means that relationship is real. If she is going to sit through a Jets game for Travis Kelsey, then I'm not sure this is all just for show, that this is all PR. Nobody sits through a Jets game unless they've got money on it or they've got a friend that's on the team or somebody playing for the other team that's playing the Jets. That is the first real sign that this relationship is the real McCoy, I think. The fact that she's going to be, I mean, she lives in New York, but even so, even living in New York, even living across the street from the from the stadium, which is in Jersey, to sit through a Jets game in what is likely going to be a blowout, that may be a real relationship. So Chiefs minus 8.5 at New York, Cleveland minus 2.5 at home, Dolphins plus 2.5 at Buffalo, and then USC minus 21.5 at Colorado, Penn State minus 26.5 at Northwestern. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you Monday.